I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. Paul enacts the masterpiece of his letter to the Colossians on a stage set by gratitude. Gratitude for the faithfulness of the Christians in Colossae, and gratitude for their willingness to show up. The basic, foundational first step of life in Christian community is a willingness to be present and participatory. Is this bare minimum love for one another, loving one another enough to commit, exemplified in our church? In chapter 20 of Pacific Northwestern author Chuck Palahniuk's debut novel, the narrator of the novel holds a one Raymond K. Hessel at gunpoint. I can tell this story because the kids are downstairs. So our narrator, he's, he has no intention of shooting Raymond K. Hessel. He waits for Raymond to finish his shift at this dilapidated corner store where Raymond works. And then, with Raymond afraid for his life, he asks him, what did you want to be? And Raymond, through his tears, admits that he wanted to be a veterinarian. But now, here he is, working a dead-end job that he hates, his life ending one moment at a time. And our bluffing narrator, he tells Raymond that the next morning, Raymond must find a way, start school, figure it out. Our narrator will check in on him just to make sure he's doing the thing he dreamed of doing, which is becoming a vet. Our narrator, he says, I would rather kill you than see you work a miserable job for just enough money to buy cheese and watch television. And Raymond, traumatized but relieved, he flees into the night. And as he goes, our narrator tells us, the reader, Raymond K. Hessel, your dinner is going to taste better than any meal you've ever eaten, and tomorrow will be the most beautiful day of your entire life. A moment today that changes tomorrow, a moment for which you are so grateful that you are finally compelled to start showing up for the person that you were supposed to be. Open your Bibles to the letter that we call Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We are now a few weeks into a new series on one first century writing, a letter actually, by a master apprentice of Jesus called Paul to a new church in the city of Colossae. Really, what you might call the introduction to the letter uh, begins with verse 1, and it lasts all the way until chapter 2, verse 5. You could break it into three sections. It's Paul's thanksgiving for the church in Colossae. It's his prayers for them. And then he explains how his work or his ministry is carried out in love for them. But Paul is a weird letter writer. He's a smart one, but a weird one. He writes these long, complicated sentences. He braids into those long, complicated sentences deep theological symbolism and profound implications. And then he makes these logical shifts on a dime while you're still trying to figure out the last thing that he said. And that is how Paul says, hello. It's almost as if God himself were the co-author. It's, that's a joke. We actually believe that he is. It's also why we are now three weeks into this series, but we haven't made it past the second verse just yet. But now that we've done all that background and stage setting, we can get into the letter 
proper. Would you guys mind standing up for me, uh, just with me for just a moment? A couple of minutes ago, Cam was talking about why we prefer to have physical Bibles if possible, why we want this to be a phone-free zone as much as it depends on us. It's not just for the sake of flimsy attention spans, which all of us have because of life in the modern world. What we are about to read is a text that we believe is breathed out by God himself, a text that is authoritative for disciples of Jesus and that has been precious to disciples of Jesus for centuries of church history. People have died for this text all over the world. So let's stand together as a small physical demonstration of reverence and undivided attention as I read Colossians. Follow along with me in chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in King Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Thank you. So Paul begins with, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Gratitude is the foundation for what follows. Gratitude and thanksgiving are the innate dispositions out of which Paul paints the theological masterpieces of his letters, all of his letters. Gratitude changes everything. See, you may not know this about me, but I love, me personally, I love Mongolian barbecue, the food. You know what I'm talking about, Scott? Scott knows. We've been there many times together. It's a funny thing, Mongolian barbecue, in that it is neither Mongolian nor barbecue. Uh, It's true. In fact, I read about it. It was invented in the 50s by a Taiwanese comedian (laughs) turned restaurateur. It's a true story. And I doubt this surprises anyone. These places always have like artifacts on display in the entryways, quote unquote, like ancient shields used by Mongolian warriors to flip up savory dishes and fry broccoli. (laughs) And then next to them, there'll be like a Christmas tree out in July. Uh, shattering the illusion of the whole thing. And I'm thinking, these Mongolian warriors traveled the battlefields of East Asia with yakisoba noodles and soy sauce. But I'm no historian, so I leave it alone. That's for them to say. And besides, when I get to eat Mongolian barbecue, I'm too grateful to nitpick, honestly. It's true. You have your doubts, I know, because you think me a pillar of nutrition. And in most ways, I am. But on occasion... I indulge the oily noodles. In fact, Peter, is that you, Peter, back there by the soundboard? I can't get my friend Peter into Mongolian. We've been several times together. And he, he says, it's just grease and noodles. That was his review. Uh, but, when I ha- <laughs> but when I get to have Mongolian on such a day, spirits are so high, so grateful am I for this deliciousness in my life. The, the other day... Uh, Abby, who's usually not a fan, she's usually uh, like Peter, a bit condescending about the whole Mongolian barbecue that is neither Mongolian nor barbecue. 
But the other day, she got like a pregnancy craving for it. She saw a picture, and she's like, that actually sounds pretty good right now. And I was like, everyone in the car, you have to act fast. See, uh, Abby, she doesn't like having to, you know, buy food. <laughs> so frugal is this woman. So if she, have, if she even muses about such a thing, you rush the family into the car, you get the show on the road. And for the rest of the day, my good mood won't budge. The glory of God <laughs> all around. I'm too grateful to complain. I'm being slightly hyperbolic, but it is true that gratitude changes everything. In fact, gratitude sets the stage for all of Paul's writing, even his corrections and his rebukes of the many churches to which he writes. One scholar I read this week wrote that what God has done is always the perch from which Christian prayer takes flight and to which it returns. Gratitude is the foundation And here, in our text tonight, Paul anchors his disposition of gratitude in, quote, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is, even at this point in Paul's story, an incredible and scandalous thing for him to say. To us, it's a whole bunch of Christian-sounding words, five of them in a row. It's Christian word salad. For those of us who have traveled in church circles, it just sounds like a really long way of saying God. But remember how this story began. Paul was a noteworthy member of Israel's religious and political leadership. Paul found his way into the Jesus movement while he was actively persecuting and killing disciples of Jesus. But what makes this change so incredible is not that Paul, after that encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, not that he just throws out everything he once believed in favor of something completely different. That would be wild, but that's not it. What makes Paul's story so incredible is that he doesn't stop being Jewish. He does not renounce Judaism. He does not abandon the Torah. Paul's eyes are open to see the story of Jesus in the story of Israel's God. Last week, our Van City communities were reading through Acts together. And we recommended watching these wonderful little animated video summaries from our friends at the Bible Project. Did you guys watch those? Anyone? No, no one in the whole church watched them? Wow, what a bummer. You, Tyson, did you, did you like them? Yeah, yeah, wow, that's a little less enthusiastic than I was hoping for, but, but you liked him. Holding He's holding back. Thank you, man. You're just keeping it under control. Anyway, there's this fascinating moment when the narrators, John and Tim, they point out that in the early stages of Acts, it's easy to interpret Paul as this cruel villain. We first meet him as he's overseeing the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And then Paul goes, or Saul at this point, goes from house to house, rounding up Christians to have them thrown in jail or to have them killed. But the narrators at the Bible Project remind us, think about things from Paul's perspective. Paul belongs to Israel's religious leadership, and the story of Israel handed down through the scriptures is a tragic story of idolatry and unfaithfulness. Read the Old Testament. It's all in there. Israel has a very bad track record of turning away from Yahweh to worship other gods. So Paul is zealous for Israel's faithfulness. He wants to protect Israel from the corrupting poison of false teaching and idolatry. It doesn't mean that what he was doing was right, but it does help us understand him. But now, Paul writes to the church of Jesus in worship and thanksgiving to, quote, God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul has not renounced or redefined Israel's God. He has come to believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. 
He refers to Jesus as Lord or Kyrios in Greek, which is the standard Greek translation of Israel's one and only God, Yahweh. Paul, the last person anyone would have expected to believe such a thing, has developed what in theology is called a Christology, so profound that now he talks like this all the time. Look at this. For example, for thousands of years, Jewish people have recited this prayer every morning and every evening. Here, say it with me out loud together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. It's called the Great Shema, which uh, from, is, comes from the Hebrew word listen or hear, which is Shema. And Deuteronomy was written in ancient Hebrew. The word our English Bibles translate as Lord in all caps, the Lord our God, is actually the proper name of Israel's God, Yahweh. But in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that same word is translated as Kyrios or Lord. And Paul faithful son of Israel, obedient to the scriptures and to the God of Israel, now says things like this. For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, or Kyrios, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Jesus, for Paul, is the Kyrios, or the Lord. He is the creator God incarnated in the flesh. Once desperate to save Israel's God from Jesus, now he has given his life over to the conviction that Jesus is Israel's God. So Paul has the story of Israel and the story of the whole world to feed his gratitude that the world was broken, that humanity was hell-bent on its own destruction when God dirtied his hands by coming to us, dying for us, and rescuing us. But again, think about this one out of Paul's personal history. Imagine how humbling it must have been to be at the top of the religious food chain, teacher, leader of Israel, Bible expert, and to learn in a moment that not only are you off, everything you're doing is against God rather than for Him. But the same moment that Paul gets rebuked by Jesus, he was immediately brought into the Jesus story and repurposed for the mission of Jesus, from destroying the church to building it after one incredible encounter with Jesus. We think of Paul now, I refer to him all the time as a master apprentice of Jesus. But he was, Paul remembered, he was the worst of sinners or the chief of sinners. But somehow, this guy going around trying to kill disciples of Jesus, lock them up, stop the Jesus movement, somehow, Paul wasn't destroyed by the God who met him on that road. He was saved. This is the story of every disciple of Jesus. But Paul feels a unique sense of, man, good grief, God should have been done with me. And here I am, and here we are. So the foundation of his writing, his greetings and prayers and encouragement, and even his rebukes, the foundation is the constant overflow of gratitude and thanksgiving. God should have been done with me, but here I am, and here we are. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
always. Then look down at verse 4. Because we have heard of two things. First, your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, by faith, Paul does not mean intellectual belief, as in they believe in their minds the story of Jesus. In Greek, there's actually no difference between the words faith and faithfulness. We say faith in Jesus in the kind of modern Christian vernacular, and we mean we really do our best to believe that he's true and the things he said are right. We believe in Jesus. That's what we often mean by faith. But in the New Testament, your faith in Christ Jesus means your faithfulness to the way of Jesus. These followers of Jesus in Colossae don't just claim to believe in Jesus. Anyone can do that. I mean, look at an American survey of who identifies as Christian. Anyone can do that. But their lives exemplify obedient faithfulness to Jesus' teaching to the degree that people notice. And word has made it back to Paul. He hasn't even visited the church yet, but people are telling him, man, the Colossians are the real deal. So first, their faithfulness to the way of Jesus. And then second, the second reason that Paul and Timothy are so grateful to hear about the church in Colossae is because they have heard of, quote, the love you have for all God's people. Now, don't miss this part. Second, only to obedience to Jesus on Paul's list of celebration and encouragement is this, that the Christians in Colossae love other Christians. This is a huge part of our text tonight. We're going to come back to this idea of Christians loving Christians before we end. But for now, let's keep going. Verse 5, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. Now, those are a lot of misleading words in the kind of Christian culture circle. So when you read stored up for you in heaven, don't think heaven as in a place that you go as a soul when you die. Literally, the line is stored up for you in the heavens. Paul isn't referencing, referencing some kind of spiritual post-mortem destination for Christian souls. When Paul says the heavens, he means God's space, as in the space from which King Jesus is ruling and reigning. Paul is talking about the renewal of all things, what Jesus called making everything new. In his commentary on this passage, scholar Scott McKnight writes this, what Paul says this hope is stored up for them in heaven, or when Paul says this hope is stored up for them in heaven, it is not because they will go to that place, stand in line until their names are called, and then be given their reward to enjoy up there in that kind of heaven. Instead, the future plans of God are all stored up in the divine throne room. And from there, God, who rules over all the heavens, will issue forth the realization of those very hopes in the new heavens and new earth, where the Colossians and saints will experience not only personal eternal blessedness, but also a society of justice, peace, and love. So Paul goes on to write in verse 6, In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So in the same way that Paul doesn't mean heaven as a place where Christian souls go when they die, he doesn't mean gospel as a message intended for getting souls into heaven when they die and that's it. Gospel is not, quote, Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, end quote. That's in there, 
But it's so much more than that. Gospel, for Paul, is the good news, the announcement of Jesus as king and everything that comes with it. It's the entire story of God's rescuing plan from Genesis to Revelation come to fruition in Jesus. And it's the promise of renewal and restoration and resurrection, everything that comes with it. This incredible, grandiose, life-changing story is bearing fruit all over the ancient world. Not in souls, one for heaven, and that's it, but in a new society of justice and compassion and nonviolence and generosity made manifest in the here and now and looking forward to a coming day when Jesus makes everything new. The Colossians didn't just hear this gospel message. They, quote, heard it and truly understood, meaning they were changed as a result of what they heard. Their lives are evidence of this change. Verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, the Greek word that my Bible translates as servant is diakonos or deacon. Uh, Epaphras is a deacon, which is an official office of the church. We have deacons here at Van City. In the New Testament, deacons and overseers or elders are kind of the two offices of church leadership, not pastors, go figure. And uh, Epaphras is a deacon of the church in Colossae. And Paul's gratitude for the church in Colossae, the people there, it spills over onto the one from whom they first heard the gospel. We think that Epaphras visited Paul in prison, he heard the gospel story, went back to his hometown in Colossae, shared the gospel with people there, and planted a church. Paul is grateful for the gospel that has not only changed his life, but now it's changing the world as he knew it and spreading throughout the ancient Mediterranean. He's grateful for the church with a capital C, this new family of believers living under the subversive lordship of Jesus all over the ancient world. He's grateful for this new family of believers living under that subversive lordship as well. He's grateful for the individuals in the church, specifically in Colossae. And he's grateful for their faithfulness to show up, to be there. He's grateful for the leaders like Epaphras watching over them. And now, before we end, there's a lot in these five verses. But I want us to consider two important things from the text. Gratitude and faithfulness. We're going to start with faithfulness, even though I said it second. Because it's going to get heavy for a minute, and I'm going to tell you guys some personal stuff. So let's get out, that out of the way, and then we'll go back to gratitude. Here's the challenge inferred by this verse and by the New Testament for our, shall we say, demographic as a church. If you are either a Gen Xer or a millennial or an Xennial, which is a new term that sociologists are using, an Xennial is... I don't know if you guys know this, but the uh, bridge between or the, the divide between Gen X and millennials is kind of hazy and no one agrees on exactly where one ends and one begins. So an Xennial is someone during the ambiguous transition between Gen X and millennials, usually born sometime in the early 80s, who grew up with an entirely analog childhood, but now has an entirely digital adulthood. So... Like me, the idea is you grew up with landline phones and tube TVs and VCRs, and smartphones weren't even around until well after you had grown up and left home. I I believe the iPhone was released in 2007. So if you belong to any of those demographics, a millennial, a Gen Xer, an Xennial, if you want to use that, I realize it sounds ridiculous, but there you go. 
Um, if you belong to one of those demographics and you happen to also have grown up around American evangelicalism, the church, chances are your experience of American evangelicalism was walled off from the rest of the world. I realize it's not the case for every single one of us, but often it is the case and, and maybe the majority case. We were kind of walled off from the rest of the world. Lots of church stuff, you know, Christian stuff, Christian music, Christian bookstores where everything cost 75% more, Christian movies and shows, um, and a, a narrow, insular, kind of frady cat approach to culture. Cultural Christianity. This kind of terrified cult Christianity that was up in arms about things like secular music and trick-or-treating and R-rated movies and especially people saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Terrifying. And that experience made cynics of us, a lot of us anyway. Maybe you're more you know, spiritually mature than I was. As it typically does, the pendulum swung and some of the fallout from that swinging pendulum was good. Some of it's really, really bad. On the good side of things, the missional church movement emerged as a correction to evangelical island. Pastors and thinkers wanted to inspire the church to remember the mission of God, something they believed we had forgotten during that whole satanic panic and the cultural Christianity thing. They wanted to get us out from under the Christian culture umbrella and out into the world sharing the gospel again. So we started trying new things. Uh, we started emphasizing the world beyond the church. Evangelism, social justice, being present, taking spiritual responsibility for our neighborhoods and communities. And of course, it wasn't perfect, but it was a much-needed remembering and re-emphasizing of the Great Commission, the thing that Jesus told us to do, make disciples, teach them to obey everything that Jesus taught. But the bad fallout was this. Some of us, read yours truly, were so frustrated and disillusioned by the plastic and politicized culture war Christianity that we thought was more concerned with Starbucks cups than, you know, the poor, that we became skeptical and pessimistic about church, church in general. Christian, for us, was synonymous with out of touch, angry, political, we couldn't even bear to say it anymore, so we started calling ourselves things like Jesus followers instead. And we were wary of churchy-sounding things, and we rolled our eyes at well-meaning churchgoers and their cheesy worship songs because we were so much cooler and so much better. We were so concerned with not being lumped in with the bad Christians that the chasm between us and them grew to the degree that we were an island unto ourselves, the exact thing that had so disillusioned us in the first place. Evangelical island became progressive island. Oh, the irony. Now, here's the thing us cynical types have to deal with. As usual, the New Testament emphasizing a frustrating middle that condemns the insular, walled-off, culture war Christianity while also condemning anti-church cynicism. In fact, Condemns isn't even the right word. You just can't do either and faithfully follow Jesus. Following Jesus compels us beyond the walls of the church, out into our neighborhoods and communities and businesses, out into art and culture to do good, to do justice, to live and share and speak the gospel. And 
Following Jesus brings us within the walls of the church again and again to share life as brothers and sisters, both in sanctuaries and around dinner tables, to love one another with support and accountability, which is why Paul writes, celebrating the Colossians because of their love for one another within the church. From the outset, you love God's people. We have heard of your love for all of God's people. This emphasis on loving the church shows up again and again and again throughout the New Testament. I think of Galatians 6. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Sounds very Jesus-y. But then he goes on to say, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Paul cares deeply about the family of believers faithfully caring for one another. The starting point for this love, this faithful caring for one another, is being here. One of the most basic, fundamental ways we step into that calling is by showing up. What a cliche, I know, a pastor preaching about coming to church. But our church has this bizarre problem that perplexes every other pastor and church leader with whom I've shared it over the last few years. In fact, when I tell them about it, they think that we're joking. We currently have about 100 people, give or take, spread out across 12 Van City communities. Roughly 100 people or so showing up every week to small groups that meet in houses or around dinner tables or, you know, these days maybe outside at a park or on Zoom, depending on your community. Now, that's already a small church, which is totally fine. It's great even. But the majority of those people, the majority do not come to church on Sunday. Sadly, this was the case long before covid And the lockdown rules and the restrictions, it's sort of always been our problem as a church. It just got worse. Some people come a couple times a month, some people not at all, but the majority of those hundred or so people show up to community, but not the gathering. For most churches, the struggle is the other way around. Every church I know fights tooth and nail to get people into communities, but Sunday for them is kind of a given. That's the easy part. Go go figure. For us, One or the other is not church. Both are church. Equally important, one without the other is not church. And listen, I know how it sounds. I'm the pastor. I have a vested interest in people being here, blah, blah, blah. But I think that I have room to talk. I grew up with a very bad experience of church. I was raised in Southeast Georgia, Southern Baptist, extreme kind of backward fundamentalism, racist. It was Uh, a really, really bad experience of church. I was as cynical as it gets. I went through the whole, you know, rebellious, I hate evangelicalism thing that alienated me from the church for years. I was the stereotype, the cliche. I love Jesus, love the Bible. I just don't like church. I'm not a pastor's kid. I wasn't bred for church life. I had no reason to stick with the church. I eventually learned it by showing up. It wasn't honestly until about 11 years ago that my wife Abby and I made a decision to really commit our lives to the church, to really show up and be here. And when we did, we had just moved to the Pacific Northwest. We did not know a single person at that church, not one, that's not hyperbole. 
We didn't work there. We had no connections. We had no aspirations to become leaders. I had no vision whatsoever to become a pastor or plant a church, nothing like that. We just wanted to give it a shot, to really give it a shot. We decided together that we were going to be there. We said, unless we're sick or there's some kind of emergency, we are going to show up. Sunday is church. And then we did. And when people asked us to do something else on Sunday night, we told them we can't. We have church on Sunday. When our families tried to plan events on Sunday nights, we told them that's when we have church. We'll have to do it some other time. Now, all of us get this idea the same way that we can't do other things when we're supposed to be at work or when we've committed to something important to us. We've blocked out Sunday and we just showed up. That's why I'm here. That's why I do this. The experience changed my life than the life of my family. When I decided to abandon my own pretentious, self-absorbed cynicism, my own non-committal, kind of half-in, half-out approach to church, church when I felt like it, it changed me. It's almost like the New Testament is on to something. It's almost like God himself is the co-author. We don't expect perfection. We are not looking to build a megachurch. We don't care about packing the building for the sake of numbers or money or notoriety. Honestly, if we did, we would have quit by now. I'm serious. I know that there are valid reasons for missing church once in a while, and when someone is otherwise completely faithful and dependable, no one bats an eye if they can't be there once in a blue moon. I remember a couple of years ago, Levi he doesn't know that I'm about to tell a glowing story about his wonderfulness. But Levi, who's faithfully been a part of Van City since the very beginning, who's always shows up, always helps, who's always been present and done more than he even should, and is always gratefully received by everyone. He came to me one Sunday night. This is a few years ago. Do you remember this? And he was like, hey, just so you know, I won't be able to make it to church in a couple of weeks. I don't think that I had ever noticed Levi not being at church ever. And I thought, man, the the honor of this dude that he doesn't owe me any kind of explanation. He doesn't, like if he wasn't here for a week, no one would say, Le wow, Levi is such a flake, he's not here. We would totally assume the very best of him because of his faithfulness. So we get it, but not but about Levi's story. That's Levi's story. <laughs> but if I can be vulnerable with you guys uh, for a minute, I honestly can't begin to explain how discouraging it can be to face the same frustrating reality for the last few years that only about 30% of the people in Van City communities consistently show up to the gathering. It honestly makes us wonder sometimes, what are we doing? Do we have a church? How much longer should we do this? It creates discord in communities amongst the people who are actually here, actually going for it, trying to share church life with people who don't go to our church because they only come to one or the other. We have always and very vocally defined belonging to Van City as actively, faithfully, consistently showing up and participating in the Sunday gathering and to a Van City community. And obviously, we have room and space for people who are new and figuring out and don't want to just, oh, geez, I got to sign a contract and jump into something right away. And some of you have been a part of that story for a very long time. It's been amazing. I don't mean to paint a picture of complete doom and gloom. God can and has and will continue to do amazing things with even a little bit of faithfulness. But when most of the people involved, in part but not all, of the church, 
aren't engaged in what we think of as the basic starting point of participation, which is showing up, we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing? What's going on? Because our church is so small, there's only so many of us, most of us know each other and what we're up to. It's a very small town vibe <laughs> at Van City Church. Uh, we often have the unfortunate privilege of hearing why people don't show up on a given Sunday and then Cam and Patrick and I sit in the office on a Monday confronting the disappointing reality of, wow, this is how little the church is prioritized. And I don't say any of that to embarrass or accuse anyone. And none of us have perfect track records with the church, and neither do any of the New Testament churches, for that matter. There are all sorts of reasons that people don't show up to faith faithfully to church. And by church, I mean the entire picture of community around a table on the Sunday gatherings around communion and worship. There's laziness and flakiness and immaturity, for sure. I, I stands, um, it stands to reason that those might be the primary things, but there's also other things like fear and anxiety and sadness and unaddressed pain and trauma. Sometimes it's as simple as a lack of commitment, and sometimes it's more complicated. But either way, Paul cares deeply about the family of believers faithfully caring for one another. One of the most basic, fundamental ways we step into that calling is by showing up. Scott McKnight puts it this way. He says, we see here in this writing an express of ecclesial-shaped commitment. That means church-shaped commitment to one another in presence, being here, advocacy, and participation. Paul does not have in mind a general humanitarian benevolence, but instead, as at Galatians 6.10, a devoted commitment to presence, advocacy, protection, provision, and mutual sanctification with other followers of Jesus. Now, when he says he does not have in mind general humanitarian benevolence, he's saying when Paul says the love for all of God's people, he's not just talking about like, oh, I feel good things for other people. He's talking about being here in person, sharing life, walking through discipleship together. The New Testament vision for this thing that we call church is not sitting idly in a pew on a Sunday without a life opened to the messy accountability of community. And it certainly isn't an optional Sunday hangout when you don't have something better to do. In our basics class, Cam points out that Sunday night is that both the gathering and community, they are participatory. If you don't show up, you are withholding your unique contribution from the church. Now, this is not the love for all God's people. And man, I hate to sound like a mom trying to convince her kids to eat vegetables with the whole, there are kids starving elsewhere in the world thing. But honestly, people around the world die just to get together and have church. And us, we're like, eh, it's sunny outside. Or, oh, we wanted a night in, or we watched Netflix, or our kid was grumpy, or my mom had a tea party, or whatever it is. I used to take it personally, honestly. A few years ago, I let it tear me up inside, but lately, the more I dive into texts like this one, I can see that the starting point for stepping into all the things that we're attempting to do as a church is the basic willingness to show up. So rather than taking it personally, oh, and being narcissistic, is it about me? I just sit and ask myself, are we doing it? Without that, without the basic willingness to show up, you can't do 
any of the other stuff. You can't wrestle through discipleship together. You can't carry one another's burdens and hold one another accountable. You can't worship together and take communion together. You can't prophesy over one another without the basic willingness to show up. It's one reason that the whole you know, lopsided people coming to communities and not to church thing is so detrimental is that what happens in our church, 50% of it happens here on a Sunday night. God's speaking and moving and worship and prophecy, the kinds of things that the Spirit does. We're talking and learning the practices and unpacking things. And then people show up to dinner and they're like, oh, I kind of listened to a podcast. The podcast of me talking for half an hour, frankly, captures none of the entire gathering. You get the teaching, but that's it. I get why Paul is so grateful to the church in Colossae. In the first few lines, he's gushing about their faithfulness and the love that they have for one another. Paul has absolutely no illusions about the church's perfection, but he's overflowing with gratitude over the simple fact that they love one another enough to be there, to faithfully show up. It's not a complicated concept, really. A while back, a good friend of mine was telling me why he had decided to kind of let the air out of a musical project in which he'd invested a decent amount of time and energy. He told me, you know, I'm probably not going to do that anymore. I'm hanging it up. And I asked him why. It seemed like it was going really well. They'd been playing, recording stuff. I was enjoying it. And he said he often felt as if he was the only one really motivated to do it. He could cobble stuff together with enough cajoling, enough to keep doing it anyway, But was that really a great setup for this project? Most of the band lacking the enthusiasm to do it, him trying to force everyone to just be there and them not showing up. And I thought, man, me and about two dozen people at Van City know exactly how you feel. So this part of the letter hits our church hard. And believe it or not, I made no attempt to commandeer the text and turn it into a rant about coming to church. This is honestly where my study took me. But that's not where I want to end. I want to end with a different but connected idea that also forms the foundation of Paul's letter, and that is gratitude. Connected to the idea of faithfully showing up is the idea of gratitude. We, in the church game, talk about gratitude a lot. It's important. We teach our kids about it, and we remind them of it when they come to us lamenting that there's a scratch in the paint job of their once-coveted Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous Extreme Chomp Spinosaurus toy. And we say to them, we, because this happens to you all too, we say, son, be grateful you have a Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous Extreme Chomp Spinosaurus toy. We say, do you hear yourself, son? That's what I said to him the other day, a scratch in the paint. I said, when I was a kid, (laughs) because I'm already doing this, when I was a kid, we didn't have, me and and your Uncle Patrick, we did not have the Ghostbusters toys that we wanted, so we had to stuff book bags full of clothes and pretend they were proton packs. Can you imagine? We took shoe boxes, we cut them down the middle, and we put some yarn on them, (laughs) And we just threw them on the ground and said it was a ghost trap. You know what I'm talking about, Levi. They made great toys for these things. We didn't have them. The toy was great. It had like a little air pump. You could stomp it and the the gate would open. So we didn't have that. We stomped on a sheet of paper that we drew a button. And the other kid would be down there and flip it open (laughs) at the same time. You can catch ghosts that way. So I say, be grateful, son. He's like, what's a proton pack? Anyway, you get the idea. But we think of gratitude as the opposite of entitlement. And it is. But it's, it's much more than that. Gratitude is what stewards faithfulness. Gratitude is what compels us 
to show up. I had such an unpleasant experience in church growing up that when Abby and I finally made that decision to really be there, and we invested in a church that was really trying to follow Jesus together, we developed this sense, this sense of profound gratitude just to be a part of things. We knew that church wasn't perfect, for sure. We knew the people there weren't perfect. We knew the leadership wasn't perfect. But we saw in this family a real sense of wanting to know and follow Jesus together over and against all its brokenness and imperfections, and we were really grateful for it. Our community, Van City Church, has never been perfect. I don't have to tell you that. We've made mistakes. I have certainly made many mistakes. We've hurt each other. We've had to apologize and forgive one another. I've been a part of that. I know you have too. But in this tiny little family, I have beheld beautiful stories of men and women and children, young and old, experienced disciples and those brand new to Jesus actually wanting to love one another and figure out how to follow Jesus together. And God has been really faithful to our little church. If we approach God's family with a disposition of gratitude, the showing up part makes a lot more sense. Imagine if Paul, an enemy of God, saved by Jesus, transformed into an instrument of the gospel, an enemy of God adopted into God's family. Imagine if Jesus had rescued Paul, had mercy on him, and told him, you are going to build my church. This is your new family. Go, show up and belong. And Paul said, eh, the sun's out, beach day. Most of the people I know who go to church, whether it's our church or another one, they have other commitments that they honor with faithful consistency, whether it's a job or a hobby or a TV show or a social media feed. They don't do it. I mean, they don't miss it. They cancel other things so that they can be faithful to these things. They de decline invitations to be able to be there for those things. We tend to show up for stuff that we really care about, for the things that really matter to us. That's what can make this problem so discouraging. But it's also what can fill us with gratitude when we learn to love one another faithfully by being here. The church in Colossae was not faithful to one another out of social obligation because there was none. It wasn't just something to do. It was, as it continues to be for many across the world, a very dangerous thing for them to do. They showed up because they genuinely believed that they had been saved by Jesus, that the truth had set them free into a new way of life, a new humanity in King Jesus, that they had a new family. They believed that the church was a family. They had been, they had been adopted as sons and daughters into God's new family. Of course they would show up. How could they not? And out of their faithfulness, the Spirit of God brought forth authentic discipleship to Jesus so that Paul, elsewhere in the world, would receive word about the church in Colossae. Man, these people really mean it. They were so grateful for what God had done that it overflowed in their love for one another by simply showing up to be there. Would someone say those things about our church? What would change in our lives if we discipline ourselves to operate out of a consistent disposition of gratitude for what God has done for us and for our brothers and sisters? What if we treated the church as if we had been saved by God and gratefully adopted into his family and that this was it? What if we thought of our communities and the gatherings as in want of our participation? 
And that when we aren't there, we are withholding what we have to contribute to the family of God. Would we be less cynical and less pessimistic, less flaky, non-committal? Would we be more devoted to one another and in that more forgiving of our imperfections, more accountable to one another in love and graciousness, kindness? Really, what wouldn't we see differently through the lens of gratitude for the story of God, what God has done for us, what God has done for this family, and what God wants to do through us and through this church? We can't force it. We can't fake it. But we can learn it. Let's ask the Spirit of Jesus to teach us. Would you guys pray with me and let's spend just a moment listening to God's Spirit. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.